once again in your Bibles to Matthew 16, verse 13. We've all seen the TV advertisements for the insurance company that has a talking gecko. Now, I have nothing against reptiles, especially those who speak with a British accent. But to be honest, if I were going to pick an insurance company based solely on its symbol, I think I would pick something not squishy and soft, but something hard and firm. If I were going to pick something, uh, an insurance company, just on its symbol, I think I would pass by the talking lizard and pick a company like Prudential Insurance that uses as its symbol the Rock of Gibraltar. I think I would opt for the company that invites me to have a piece of the rock. Earlier in our study of Matthew's gospel, we heard Jesus deliver what has become one of his best-known parables. And in that parable, Jesus compared two builders, a builder who built his house on sand and a builder who built his house on rock. And when the storm came, the foolish man, his house was destroyed. But we remember what happened to the house that was built on the rock. That house survived. And Jesus was very clear about the point of the parable. He said this, Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. That parable helped to prepare us for the passage that is before us today. In this passage, we will hear Peter give what is referred to as Peter's confession. Peter will say to Jesus, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. To which Jesus will respond, I say to you, You are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Today we will want to examine Peter's confession, but most importantly, we will want to examine Jesus' proclamation because we want to understand what Jesus has to tell us about how he will build his church because, he says, he builds it on a rock. Let's look, please, at Matthew 16, verse 13, as Matthew sets the scene. Again, Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? As we arrive with Jesus and his disciples at the outskirts of Caesarea Philippi, it is approximately two and a half years into his earthly ministry. At this time, Jesus has largely withdrawn from the crowds 
and is now focusing his attention on his disciples as he prepares them for the days ahead. That is because when he leaves this place, Caesarea Philippi, Jesus will turn his eyes toward Jerusalem and the cross. They are on the outskirts of the city of Caesarea Philippi. And this is about as far north as you can go in Israel and still be in Israel. And as the name suggests, Caesarea Philippi is a Roman city. And so it is a blatantly pagan city. Some years ago, when Dawn and I had the opportunity to visit Israel, one of the highlights of our trip it was going to the exact location where this passage takes place. If you will look inside your bulletins today, you will find an insert. And on that insert, you will see, if you don't have a bulletin, raise your hand and somebody will bring you a bulletin. Inside the bulletin, in that insert, you will see a sheet with two images. On the top is a photo that I took. And on the bottom is an artist's rendering of what that same spot looked like when Jesus and the Twelve arrived. I'm going to pause for just a second. Let's get these, uh, these pictures uh, distributed because they are important. Again, on this, fo- this sheet, the top photo is a photo that I took. And on the bottom is an artist's rendering of what that same spot looked like when Jesus and the Twelve arrived near Caesarea Philippi. The location we're looking at in these photos is not the city itself. Instead, we are on the road near the entrance to the city. And at the entrance of pagan cities, it was common to find pagan temples. At these temples, travelers would ask their gods, let's settle down. Has everybody got a picture now? Okay. At the top photo is a picture I took. All right, is everybody with me now? The bottom photo is an artist's rendering of what that site looked like when Jesus and the Twelve arrived. All right? Now, these temples, travels, travelers would ask their gods for protection when they left the city. And they gave thanks when they returned to the city at these pagan temples. Now, of course, Jesus and his disciples would not participate in this kind of idolatry. They would not visit these pagan temples. But it is believed that Jesus chooses this spot. He chooses to use this spot as the backdrop for the crucial interaction that he will have with his disciples. We can understand this area is a sort of a shopping mall. It's a shopping mall where worshipers could bring to the God of their choice a sacrifice depending on their needs. 
Each of those temples and each of those shrines represent a different god. Some of the temples are the major gods, and if you look carved in the stone of that wall face, you will see little shrines for some of the minor gods. In Jesus, if you look at the uh, top photo, it is impossible to miss the site's most prominent feature. See what it is, right? A giant cave. In Jesus' day, inside this cave was a vertical shaft that the ancients believed was a bottomless pit. That shaft was later blocked by an earthquake. But in the first century, pagan visitors believed that that bottomless pit led to the underworld, and it was the entrance to and from the underworld which spirits would take to go from below the earth and up to the surface. If we look now at the bottom illustration and look at the building that's farthest to the left, you will see behind that building that same cave. This temple and this cave were dedicated to the Greco-Roman god Pan, P-A-N. In fact, before the city was renamed Caesarea Philippi, the city was called Panias, Panias, after the god Pan. When the Greeks and then the Romans depicted this god in their statues and in their paintings, Pan appeared as a man from the waist up. But his legs and his hindquarters were that of a goat. In addition, on his head, on the statues and the paintings, on his head are depicted horns of a goat. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? He is also depicted with two more defining characteristics. A prominently exposed phallus, and a musical instrument. That musical instrument is, of course, the pan flute. That instrument was used for the seduction of young ladies. In a belief system with many gods, Pan was believed to be the god of the forest. But more importantly, Pan was believed, don't miss this, Pan was believed to be the god of caves and all places dark and sinister, all things connected to the underworld. See, Pan was one of the gods of the underworld. Later, when we hear Jesus speak about the gates of Hades, I will ask you to picture this cave. Pan, as the god of caves and all things dark and sinister, was the one who was thought to be responsible for striking fear into the hearts of men and women. In fact, our English language 
still pays homage to this demonic spirit. Every time we say the word panic, panic, the word panic, that sudden sense of fear, that word pays homage to the demon god Pan. Now I say Pan is understood by the ancients to be a god. We know him to be a demon. He is a demon who the pagan peoples mistakenly honored as a god. Now here then are Jesus and his disciples at this spot where the pagan world came to worship Pan. The disciples are in view of this cave that Pan's worshipers believed was the entrance to the underworld. Here was the entrance to the underworld. Here they were at the gates of Hades. How's that for Matthew's introduction? Now that we've set the scene, let's look again at the middle of verse 13 where Jesus asks his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? During the two and a half years that have now encompassed Jesus' earthly ministry, the disciples have had the opportunity to mingle with the crowds. So they're in the best position to give Jesus this assessment about what the crowds, what the multitudes think about Jesus. But it's not the case that Jesus doesn't know what's, what's in their hearts or in their minds. Instead, he wants the twelve. To think carefully. He wants the 12 to think carefully about the perception of the crowds and then weigh that against what they believe about him. The disciples report that there are various theories about who Jesus is. Some say he's John the Baptist. Some say he's Elijah. See, these are their theories. These are the theories of the crowds. Some say he's Jeremiah. Maybe he's just one of the prophets. They're not sure which prophet he might be. You see, the people are speculating that Jesus must be one of the former prophets and either has the spirit of these prophets or perhaps one of them has been resurrected from the dead and Jesus is one of these, one of these former prophets. And the people, have they, they've heard his authoritative teaching, have they as they've seen his miraculous powers, they naturally understand and they rightly conclude, he must be sent by God, so he must be a prophet. Now, the view of the crowds is far superior to that of the religious leaders. Remember what the religious leaders concluded. When they saw his miraculous powers, they said, he must be doing this by the power of Beelzebub. They accused him of being in collusion with Satan. Now, the people... They're to be commended because they recognized Jesus as a prophet of God. But their assessment of Jesus has fallen tragically short. Here's the problem. All of these prophets, John, Elijah, Jeremiah, they were all forerunners. They were all heralds of the coming Messiah. They were all sent to prepare the way of the Lord. And so as the people count him as one of the prophets 
preparing for the way of the Lord, they failed to see Jesus for who he truly is. He is a prophet, yes. But he is the prophet of prophets because he is the Messiah himself. So Jesus now presents the ultimate question. And this is the question that all people everywhere must answer. And here is that question. It's at verse 15. What about you? Who do you, Jesus says, say that I am? It's important that we notice that Jesus' questions in the plural. He's asking all the disciples. They've all heard his teaching. They've all seen his miraculous miracles. And so he asks them, who do you say that I am? Not surprisingly, it's Peter. Bold, outspoken Peter, who jumps to the front of the twelve, and he serves as spokesman. He answers for the twelve. Look verse 16. Simon Peter answers, You are the Christ, Son of the living God. This is commonly referred to as Peter's confession. And it is tremendously significant. Because all 15 previous chapters of Matthew have been building up to this point, to this decisive moment. We have, during those 15 chapters, heard Jesus referred to as the Christ, but only from Matthew and only as an editorial comment as Matthew explains to us, his readers, who this Jesus is. He is the Christ. But this is the first time a person addresses Jesus directly and says, you are Christ. As we just discussed, the people of Israel, the crowds, the multitudes, they've come up short. They believe that Jesus is a prophet. But finally, Peter recognizes he's not another in a line of prophets waiting for the Messiah. He is the Messiah. Peter says, you are the Christ. You're the one we've been waiting for. When we hear Jesus referred to as the Christ, we need to know that that title, Christ, that is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew word Messiah. And so what Peter's essentially saying is, well, actually what he is saying is, you are the Messiah. And according to the prophets, the Messiah was the one who would come to fulfill all the promises of God. We should recognize the apostles have come a long way, especially Peter. Let's think back to the day early in their ministry. When Jesus and the disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee and their lives were threatened by a terrible storm, and Jesus calmed the storm, the disciples whispered to one another. Remember this? They said to one another, What manner of man is this that even the wind and the waves obey? Now Peter has arrived at the point where he is ready to declare, you are the Christ. While Peter is ready to acknowledge the truth of who Jesus is, we should also bear in mind that Peter does not yet fully understand 
the purpose of Jesus' coming. As we know, Jesus came to give his life for the forgiveness of sin. And yet, when Jesus reveals to the twelve in the very next passage that he must go down to Jerusalem because there he was going to die, it is Peter who is the very first to declare he will not allow it. When he realizes that Jesus is the Christ, he still has a long way to go. He has a long way to go in understanding the real purpose of Jesus' mission. But even at this point, there is one thing that is absolutely clear to Peter. It is the uniqueness of Jesus. In the Greek text, Peter's confession is ten words long. And of those ten words, four of them, that's 40%, right? 40% of them, four words out of the ten, are the definite article. The word we translate as the. So, for example, Peter says to Jesus, he doesn't say, you are a Christ. He says, you are the Christ. He uses the definite article. If we translated Peter's confession literally, it would read like this. Listen. You are the Christ. Christ, the Son of the God, the Living One. Does that sound definite? Of course it does. As definite articles go, you cannot get more definite than that. Peter is very definite. He is definite that Jesus is the One. He is the Anointed One. There are none like Him. And so when Jesus says, who do you say that I am? You are the You are the Christ. So now that we've considered the first part of Peter's confession, let's look at the second. And it is the second part that elevates Peter's confession from amazing to miraculous. Amazing to miraculous. After saying, you are the Christ, Peter continues by saying, you are the son of the living God. Unlike the crowds who could only see Jesus as yet another in a line of prophets, Peter sees the uniqueness of Jesus. Recognizes Jesus' declares, you are the son of the living God. We are reminded that the disciples have already recognized and confessed that Jesus is supernatural and that he is miraculous in his powers. And he has already given evidence of his divinity. They have already declared that Jesus is truly the Son of God. It occurred when they were crossing the lake on a second occasion. You remember that? This was the occasion when Peter and the others are crossing and they are fearing for their lives. And uh, it is at that time that Jesus is not in the boat with them. 
And so as they are fearing for their lives because of this violent storm, suddenly Jesus appears, walking on the water. Peter cries out, let me come to you on the water. Jesus says, come. And Peter does. And he's walking on the water. But as soon as he takes his eyes off of Jesus and looks to the wind and waves, he begins to sink. He cries out, Lord, save me. Jesus does. He reaches out his hand and he pulls up Peter. The two of them then step into the boat together. And do you remember what the people, the disciples were saying? Matthew reports it to us. Those who were in the boat, Matthew says, came and worshipped him, saying, truly, you are the Son of God. And so we're reminded that the disciples have already recognized Jesus' divinity. They've already said, you are the Son of God. And so Peter's confession is not unique to Peter. But what is unique to Peter is that this is the first time that these two crucial elements, that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus is the Son of God, are now put together. And the reason that is so crucial, what makes that confession so profound, is that is the essence of the gospel. That is it. That Jesus is the Christ and he is God. You see, You cannot have one without the other. For Jesus to accomplish his mission, he had to be both Christ and God. He had to save us from our sin. He needed to be the Christ, and he needed to be God in order to deliver us to eternal life. Peter puts those two together. He is both Christ and God. And if that is the case... If Peter has put these two elements together for the first time, let's ask this question. Is it because he's smarter than the other disciples? Is it because he's more clever than most? This recognition did not come by his own wisdom or his own ability. It was given to him by God. We come then to the first of three statements made by Jesus to Peter. Look, please, at verse 17. Jesus says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, that is, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Jesus is not conferring a blessing on Peter He is instead acknowledging that a blessing has already been given to him. And what is that blessing? That blessing is a gift. It's a gift that's given from God to Peter. And what is that gift? It's divine revelation. God has enabled Peter's mind and his heart to see the truth of who Jesus is. Now, this knowledge that Jesus is both Christ and God. Those truths need to be taught by men and women. They need to be taught by us to an unbelieving world. But it is God 
who is the one who reveals these truths to our hearts. You see, it's God who enables that moment when it all comes together. It is God who enables that moment when we can declare, you know what, I once was blind. But now I see it. I, I get it now. I see how it comes together. Christ is the Son of God. And just as it happened for Peter, it happens for us. It's that moment when we accept him as Jesus, we accept him as Savior and Lord. Not because we've done anything special. Not because we're smarter than the other, the unbelieving world, the world, the world who has not yet believed. Because it's been given to us as a gift by the ability to see the truth. I hope that we will never lose sight of that miracle. If you believe today that Jesus is your Savior, that he is the Son of God, it's not because you were smart enough to figure it out, but because God opened your eyes. He revealed it to your heart. But if you are here today and you have not yet believed in him, I pray that you would go to him asking him in prayer, to reveal that truth to you. Why? Because the Bible says God gives grace to the heart. You go to him in humility, telling him you want to see the truth. I believe he will reveal. Go please to verse 18 as Jesus makes a second declaration. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Beginning in the third century, <clears throat> the Roman Catholic Church maintained that these verses teach that the church is built on the person of Peter. And this, despite the objections of the Catholic Church's greatest theologian, St. Augustine. It is because of this verse the Roman Church further suggests that Peter was its first pope. That, that much I will acknowledge. And therefore, they say, it is through Peter that the Roman Church claims to possess ongoing authority in Christendom. Because of a tradition invented by the Church called apostolic succession, the Roman Church says that the mantle of leadership has been handed down from one pope to the next, tracing back to Peter, although there is no biblical evidence to support such a system. Nevertheless, it is believed that the current pope, in a sense, sits on the throne of Peter. Unfortunately, this has led to some problematic results especially when the Pope speaks ex cathedra, which literally means from the throne. When a Pope speaks ex cathedra, it means he is speaking from his official capacity as the head of the church. And as the head of the church, it is believed by the Roman church. As the head of the church, when the Pope makes a pronouncement ex cathedra, it is a pronouncement that has equal authority to Scripture. Now, this practice is patently unbiblical because if we look to the full counsel of Scripture, 
we see that there is only one head of the church, Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.18 says, He, Jesus, is the head of the church. Ephesians 1.22 says, God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. In fact, Christ's headship of the church is abundantly made abundantly clear right here in our text for today. Look at verse 18. If you look at 18, again, Jesus makes it perfectly whose church it is. He says at 18, on this rock, I will build my church. Not the Pope's church, not even Peter's church. It is Christ's church. Now, there's a second view about this verse, and I, I'm sure you will likely have guessed it is popular within the Protestant church. But let me remind you that not, even when something is popular, it doesn't make it right. I'll tell you that because I want to warn you that I believe the view that is popularly held by most Protestants misses the mark. Oh, it comes awfully close, but it's not quite all the way there. Now, the popular interpretation works out something like this. Look at the first part of verse 18. Jesus says, And I say to you that you are Peter. Jesus here is renaming Simon. His name was Simon. Now his name will be Peter. He's renaming him. If you're looking at your own personal Bible and you like to make notes in your Bible, you might want to write on top of the name Peter the word Petros, P-E-T-R-O-S. That is the Greek word for rock. And then Jesus goes on to say, and on this rock I will build my church. Now above the word rock in your English Bibles, I invite you, if, if it's your own Bible and you write notes in your Bible, I would invite you to write the word Petra, P-E-T-R-A. Some scholars will argue that these differences only reflect the masculine versus the feminine forms of the word, but other scholars maintain that Jesus intends a different connotation for these two words, and I tend to agree with that view. It is said that when Jesus speaks of Peter, he means a stone. Think of Peter in his first letter to, uh, in, in Peter's first letter, when he writes this, you also, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house. And so the idea is, Peter is not the rock, he's a stone. If you look now where Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my church, that word Petra is, should be understood as an enormous outcropping of stone. Think again of the rock of Gibraltar, that enormous rock that stands 1,400 feet tall and is enormous stone. It is solid. It is unmovable. That is the view, I think. This is the appropriate image to have in mind. When Jesus speaks about building his house upon a rock, his church... I believe he's thinking of something unmovable, as opposed to Peter, 
who in the days ahead will not will not be unmovable, will he? Peter will vacillate. Isn't it Peter who, who will fearfully run? And he said, aren't you with that teacher? So I think you could see where this is already heading. Because we know who the true rock is. Christ himself. As our opening reading of the Psalms said, Toby read it at the call to worship. The psalmist says, God is the rock of our salvation. Peter is hardly unmovable, but God is. Let's look more closely at what Jesus means by the rock. In an effort to do that, let's look more closely at his exact wording. Jesus says at 18, on this rock, I will build my church. And so what does this rock represent? What does it refer to? Well, the Catholic Church still maintains that it's Peter. Peter is the rock upon which the church is built. But the popular interpretation held by most of the or much of the Protestant church is that this rock refers not to Peter, but to Peter's confession. Have you heard that? Yeah. Yeah, his confession. In other words, when Peter confessed, you are the Christ, you are the son of the living God, it's on this faithful confession, it is said, that Jesus will build his church. And so the argument goes that when others through the ages make that same confession, believers are added like living stones to Christ's church. See, that's biblically supported, and it's a good argument. And I, I think that's part of the answer. But I think there's more to the answer to it than that. And so let's consider a third view, which will take into account the wider teaching of Scripture. And this view is not new. It doesn't negate the one we just talked about, but it adds to it. This third view is not new. In fact, many of the early church fathers held this view. Perhaps the most instructive statement that informs this view comes from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians. And in that letter, Ephesians 2.20, Paul says this. He says that believers are part of God's household, quote, having been built on the foundation of the apostles, plural, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself, the head cornerstone. Let me me say that again. Paul says that believers are part of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. Paul says the church is not built on Peter, but it is built on the apostles, with Jesus himself as the head cornerstone. What Paul is saying is the church is not built on the apostles personally. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles in the sense that it is built on their teaching, on the testimony of the apostles. You see, the apostles passed on to us what the Lord himself taught them. While the apostles are part of the foundation upon which this church is built, their teaching, 
It is Jesus himself who is the chief cornerstone of that foundation. Now, this idea of the cornerstone is crucial to our understanding. The cornerstone is the first stone that is set when constructing a masonry foundation. Dig the hole for the foundation. That first stone is set in such a way that after that stone is set, that cornerstone, that's Jesus, everything has to be set in relation to that cornerstone. Everything needs to be square and plumb according to that cornerstone. The cornerstone determines the position and the integrity of the entire building. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. No man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. You see, the, the apostles are part of that foundation. But it is Jesus and his teaching, his lordship, that is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. Everything is set in relation to him. Because Jesus Christ is the rock of our salvation. And it is upon this rock, Jesus Christ, and the truth of his teaching, that the church and our lives need to be built. Not on man's speculation, not on man's philosophies, but on the true word of God, as handed down to us by Christ and his apostles. And because Jesus proclaims that his church will be built on his lordship and on the truth of his word and no other word, he makes a powerful promise. Look again at verse 18. The gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. These words are often interpreted to mean that the evil forces of Satan will attack the church, but those attacks will not prevail. Those attacks will not overcome the church. And while that is true, that is true, it is unlikely that is the meaning here. Why? Gates are not instruments of attack. Gates are not weapons of attack. Instead, gates have one of two purposes. In terms of a city, a gate keeps people out, doesn't it? Listen to this. In terms of a prison, gates keep people in. In this context, the gates of Hades refers to the gates that hold people in. Hades refers to the place of the dead. When Jesus says the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church, he is saying that death no longer has the power to hold his people captive. Now think of this scene. Jesus is there. The disciples at Caesarea Philippi, the outskirts of it, and the disciples are looking at the cave of Pan that is believed to be the gates of the underworld. It is understood that's the place of death, and people don't come back from the dead. But Jesus says, those gates will not prevail against the church, meaning for those who are true believers, death no longer has the victory. Death can no longer hold the people of God. Why? 
Because Jesus Christ has set the captives free. The gates of death cannot hold the believer because Jesus has given us eternal life. Amen? After Jesus uses this construction metaphor saying, I will build my church, it leads to the introduction of a related metaphor, and it's the metaphor of keys. We're on the third and last, and this one will be the shortest for us. We're almost done. Verse 19, Jesus says this, And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. When Jesus says, I give you the keys of the kingdom, he's speaking specifically to Peter now, not to the disciples in general. He's speaking singularly to Peter. And he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. This verse has given rise to many cartoons, actually, and jokes. You could probably picture those cartoons, like in the New Yorker magazine. There is Peter standing at a lectern like this by the pearly gates of heaven, and he is checking people as they're lined up. He's judging who gets in and who doesn't. Now, while that imagery may make for good jokes, it doesn't make for good theology. Why? Because the Apostle John makes it very clear, all judgment has been given to the Son. You see, it is Christ alone who determines who will enter his kingdom and who will not. And so if these keys don't refer to Peter by the gate in judgment, then to what does it refer? Well, let's first consider what keys represent And then we'll quickly look at the related image of of binding and loosing. When I was a kid in elementary school, there was something that I noticed that left a huge impression on me. The principal would occasionally come to visit our classroom, and when the principal came, the teacher would make a big deal out of that. The teacher would say, this is the most important man in the school. Here's the principle, pay him respect. But I remember even then that I thought in my mind, this was not the most important man in the school. In my mind, the most important man in the school was the guy who walked down the halls with that loop of keys that jingled as he walked. You see, I knew, even as an elementary kid, I knew what keys meant. My parents had keys. It allowed you to to go into things. My parents had just a few keys. This guy had a zillion keys. What do keys mean? Access. Now think about Peter. Peter is given the most important key you can possibly have. Because Jesus says, these are the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Those keys didn't represent judgment. They represent access. Jesus gives Peter the keys that allow him to open the door of heaven. And by the way, the next time you're in a church and, you know, you've got the uh, classical stained glass, look, uh, you won't find it here, but when you're in a, a formal church uh, and you see uh, panels, and you look for the bearded man with keys. That's Peter. Okay. And if you, look on, if you look online, you'll find the different symbols for each of the, of the apostles. Uh, I think it's um, 
John, who is pictured with the, the lamb, but I might be mistaken on that. But Peter, he's got the keys. He's got the keys. Now think for a moment the contrast between Peter and the religious leaders. Remember, the religious leaders, they flat out refuse to believe Jesus is the Messiah. And what does Jesus say about these religious leaders? Well, he's going to tell us in Matthew 23. Listen to what Jesus will say about the religious leaders of Israel. He says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees. You're a bunch of hypocrites. You shut the kingdom of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not try to enter, nor do you let men go in who are trying to do so. See, the religious leaders close the door to heaven. I think of Peter. And how, we, how did the religious leaders close the door to heaven? By refusing to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And, and what's more, they taught others to reject him as well. But then think of Peter. He's given the keys to the kingdom. And what is that key? To entering the kingdom of heaven. Well, it is the same confession that Peter made. Jesus Christ, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, let's quickly add this image of binding and loosing. This is a, it's actually quite complicated, but I'm going to give you the Reader's Digest version. It will be helpful when we think of binding and loosing as tying and loosing as untying. So think you have a, a big bundle of clothes or something, right? If you're going to bind or loose, you're either tying it or loosing it, untying it. And so it, again, it, it continues this imagery of opening a package or closing a package, right? And so Peter has been given the privilege and the authority to declare the terms by which God opens the door, he looses the door, or he closes the door, he ties the door, he binds the door. And again, what are the terms by which the doors of heaven are open? When Jesus asks us the most important question that can possibly ask in this life, the question that Jesus is asking us today, who do you say that I am? The answer that must come, not just from our lips, but from our hearts. Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you and glorify you for the giving of your grace that reveals to our hearts the truth of Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that for all who believe the gates of Hades will not and cannot prevail against us. For the Lord Jesus has set us free. Amen.